Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today, we are going to discuss school health, specifically the physical well-being of students. In January, a message titled Health and Education of Symbiotic from Gene Carter, Executive Director of ASCD, that's the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development, he stated that health and education are related. They are interrelated. They are symbiotic. Children cannot learn unless they are healthy and safe. I have had the good fortune of working with exceptional professionals who place the overall responsibilities of their job and their integrity above all else. One of those professionals is Sylvia Kalich. Sylvia is a registered professional nurse who currently serves as a nurse supervisor for a Long Island school district. She's a columnist, just for the health of it, and blogger. She is a veteran of the U.S. Air Force, has worked as a college campus nurse, school nurse, and nurse consultant for the U.S. Department of Labor. Sylvia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dr. Jefferson. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Uh, Can you give us an official definition for a school nurse? Um, Basically, a school nurse in the state of New York has to be a registered nurse. The National Association of School Nurses defines school nursing as a specialized practice of professional nursing that advances the well-being, academic success, and lifelong achievement of students. To that end, school nurses facilitate positive student responses to normal development, and they promote health and safety. Okay. Now, when I think of a school nurse, I think of, you know, where I would go if my tummy ached if I was in elementary school or if I scraped my knee or bumped my head on a playground. Um, how would you describe the role of a school nurse? I mean, you gave us an excellent definition, but, you know, to the layperson, what would you say is 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 the crux of the job? And basically, a school nurse in, a, in an educational setting, uh, public school or college, we provide first aid to students whether it be a head injury, like you said, or a scraped knee or a tummy ache. Um, If they're injured or they're sick, we provide services. We're not allowed to go above and beyond first aid. If advanced medical care is needed, then we would need to, you know, rely on our nursing assessment and call for an ambulance or call for a parent to pick up the child to take them for advanced medical care. But basically, we are the persons that, extend health services to that individual in the school setting. Okay. Now, when I think of the little red schoolhouse or I think of a little house on a prairie, I see a room full or a small building full of children, but I don't see any nurses. And I'm wondering at what point um, did the need for nurses or did someone come up with the excellent idea of having uh, school nurses present? Um, Well, the history of school nursing dates back to 1902. When Linda Rogers Strutters, she was the first nurse to be placed in the New York City school system for about a month as an experiment. And basically, they were trying to attempt to reduce health-related absenteeism. They wanted to see if, if by having a nurse to promote health services in a school setting would decrease the students from being absent from school, and it worked. By December 1902, she was, she was named by the superintendent of school nurses with a staff of 12 nurses. And two months later, an additional 15 nurses were hired. So during the first year, health-related absenteeism was reduced by nearly 90%. And what city was this? New York. Okay. New York. And then others soon decided to join. You had Los Angeles, who joined in 1904, Boston, who joined in 1905, Philadelphia in 1908, and Chicago in 1910. Okay. Now, let's let's go into some... You have a, a very detailed blog uh, that you maintain and update, uh, very informative. And so share with us uh, common questions that parents have for nurses. Um, well, the typical question that parents have for nurses is when do they keep their child home from school? 
when is it, you know, when is that borderline, do I keep my child home or do I send them to school? And basically, if your child has a fever of 100 or more or higher, they should stay home. Because the Academy of, um, American Academy of Pediatrics defines a fever as 100 or more, higher, 100 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. If they're vomiting or they have diarrhea, they should stay home for at least on, for 24 hours until it has subsided. And if they have any unexplained rash present on any area of their body, that's definitely a reason to stay home because you don't know if it's something that's contagious to others. When in doubt, I always say, just call your doctor and consult with a pediatrician. But basically, that's what parents could go by. Diarrhea, vomiting, fevers, and rashes. And basically, you know your child. If you see that they're not feeling well and they're not up to par, keep them home. All right. Now share with us some other common questions parents may have. Um, well, one of the common questions is when they pick them up from school or when they do, you know, they don't know when to send them or not, when can their child return to school? And ideally, they should be symptom-free for at least 24 hours or on a prescribed antibiotic for at least 24 hours to treat whatever the illness is. Um, they should ideally have a doctor's note clearing um, the child, stating what the diagnosis is and clearing them to return to school, and basically stating that the child is not contagious. Because after all, the whole fundamental of school nursing is to promote the health and safety of all. So when you have a student in a building anywhere between 200 to 2,200 students in a building, you want to make sure that we're ensuring the health and safety of students as well as staff. Okay. So that's one, one of the questions that comes up. Um, another question that may come up is what kind of, child, of care does my child receive by the school nurse? And again, to reiterate, your child receives first aid care. We're not allowed to go above and beyond first aid in New York State. And if it is needed, then the parent is contacted and on only when necessary, an ambulance will be summoned. Some okay. parents ask us if we could elaborate on first aid, and you touched upon a, a few of those. Cuts or lacerations, sprains or fractures. They may come to school with a burn. You know, we had a student, um, and from my experience, that was standing at the door getting ready to leave the nurse's office, a little five-year-old, and a custodial staff came to the other side of the door to enter the room and had coffee in his hand and spilled it on the child. And there's your, you know, that's, that's how you can see a burn in a school setting. And, of course, you know, the child had to be taken for advanced medical care because he did suffer second-degree burns on his chest and face and neck. So that's an example of, um, you know, um, injuries that happen in school. you got your head injuries, you have your nosebleeds, you have sometimes a kid could be choking on, a, on an item, you know. I had a mm -hmm. kid swallow an eraser once and was choking on an eraser. So that's like, okay, you don't expect that, but you have to be prepared for the unexpected. Now, you mentioned being prepared for the unexpected, and I'm sure you've had many instances where uh, parents have sent students to school uh, who should not be in school. How do you manage those students, especially if a parent is, is not available? Yeah, it, it becomes a catch-22 because in today's economy, economy world, we have parents, you know, two-parent households, both parents need to work, or you have the one-parent household and they're the only working parent, and it becomes an issue, child care for them. They don't have anywhere to send the child, and they must go to work, and they don't have enough sick time saved up. So they'll take the chance and they'll send the child to school. And what we normally set in place is we tell all our parents, we must have, or they must have, I should say, two people in the event of an emergency that can pick up their child if they're unable to do that. And so we try to work with our parents. We'll try to keep them in a nurse's office as well, as, you know, within a reasonable amount of time to secure the parent, you know, either the parent could pick them up or could secure someone else to do so in their place. Okay. And when a child has to go to uh, the hospital, if you have to call an ambulance, uh, who goes with the child if the parent is not readily available? Uh, that's an excellent question. We have that scenario quite a bit. And basically, we, we, we define that person as an ambulance escort. And anyone in the school district could act as an ambulance escort except for the nurse because you cannot leave the building unattended. 
So if you have, you know, let's say a building um, with 500 students and we have a student that necessitates transport to the hospital via ambulance, that escort ideally is an adult, obviously, and they're taking the place of parental emotional support and they will ride the ambulance with the child until the parent could get there. Um, we're very fortunate in our district. We have it set up where we already have people that we already know we're going to pull and have them go with the student until the parent or guardian could arrive. But it's never the nurse, and the reason being is because you cannot leave the whole school unattended without the health services of a nurse for one child. Once EMS gets on the scene, the transfer of care gets transferred to them. Okay. The district is no longer liable. Now, does, does do the nurses operate based on uh, state health laws, or are they operate based on federal uh, expectations of federal laws? Actually, it's both. Um, state laws, for sure. We have New York State Healthwide Services um, that has a wonderful website that we get a lot of our information from. We have the National Association of School Nurses that does it um, nationwide. And we do have some federal guidelines, such as HIPAA, that's federal guidelines. Um, we have to protect the confidentiality and nature of the students' visits to our office. Um, everything is on a need-to-know basis. So basically, we operate under both um, state and federal. Okay. Now, when you worked, when you were a consultant for the U.S. Department of Labor, uh, what, what areas did you consult? Oh, interesting. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, I, it had nothing to do with school nursing. It was a complete different arena and practice of nursing. Basically, I worked for the federal government. I worked for the Department of Labor, the Office of Workers' Compensation Program, and my job was I was a nurse consultant to independent nurses that were assigned as case managers for federal government employees who became ill or injured on the job. And the goal was to return them to work as soon as possible with the proper nursing management services in place as to minimize the length of disability to save the federal government money. So it didn't matter which federal government employee we're talking about. It could be FBI, it could have been U.S. Marshals, it could have been postal workers, you name it. It was any, any, any federal government employee. And I was in charge of region number two. So that was the state of New York, state of New Jersey, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. So this would probably be a good time of the year if you were in that capacity this would be a good time of the year to do a lot of your work down in uh, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, I would assume. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> the snow has just been too much. <laughs> okay. The reason I ask that is because, you know, when I touched on federal guidelines, because I know when we, when we, uh, when I have guests on who are from a particular area, um, my, my listeners are from all over the country and, and we have international listeners as well. That's why I want to see how common the, the rules are for what applies in, let's say, New York State and what applies in, in Idaho or Utah or Illinois. Sure, sure. So. Everything is really state-dependent, and what I usually tell my nurses when I train them and hire them and recruit them is always refer to your New York State Nurse Practice Act. There's an, there's, every state has a Nurse Practice Act, and that governs how we operate under our license, and you can never go wrong. When you do things by the book, you can't go wrong. But obviously, school nursing practice has expanded nationwide, and so we do share some common things that we do, and other states don't do certain things. I'll give you an example. Um, child, child with severe life-threatening allergies, that's become really a big topic in school nursing practice because children more and more currently have life-threatening allergies, peanut being one of the most common ones. And... Some offices in the states have a stock EpiPen to be used in emergencies, and some don't. So okay. President Obama has signed into law where he wants to see every state have a stock EpiPen for emergency use. New York State already has it. Every health office where I work has a stock EpiPen set, one for adults and one for pediatrics that we use in the event of an emergency, and that child does not have an EpiPen, so we're prepared to save their life, if you will. Mm -hmm. But not all states um, have joined in on forces on that. But that's something that um, President Obama is definitely working on. Okay. Well, thanks. That's excellent information. It's time to take a short break, but stay tuned. 
We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back, welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest, Sylvia Kalich. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on Talk Zone. So, Sylvia. Yes, John. Yeah. Um, one of the areas in your blog, and once again, your blog is very informative, so if listeners would like to go, it's Um One of your areas, you start to discuss injury-free kids. So what advice do you offer parents for raising injury-free kids? Oh, well, an ounce of prevention is worth a lot, right? So we, we, we try to teach children what's safe and what's not safe, and Supervision is a big part of that. Sometimes kids just run wild and do what they want. But besides the educational and supervisory piece, it's basically teaching children certain safety procedures um, during certain activities, obviously. And there's a website that's developed by New York State Department of Health. It's a government website. It's um, www.nyhealth.gov forward slash prevention, forward slash injury. And it has a whole presentation for parents and educators on various topics on how to keep your child safe and during various activities. So I would definitely um, advise parents, caregivers, and educators to go onto that website and learn different things on what they could do, different measures they could take to keep their child safe. Okay. Now, this is strictly physical safeness, or do you t- cover, um, I know people have a big concern now with, uh, you know, children being uh, manipulated into, whether it's into gangs or, or, you know, walking from home to school. Does this, does that site cover everything with regards to? It, it uh, does. It has bicycle safety. It has childhood fall prevention. It has fires and residences, um, what to do. It has for caregivers or parents, sh- shaken baby syndrome, which people don't realize that if you shake a baby hard enough because their brain is still not developed, they could cause um, permanent injury and permanent disability for that child. They have um, teen safety driving. They have, um, let's see, what are the topics do they have off the top of my head? They break it down by age. So that you have like infant to one-year-old, and then you have your two-year-olds up to ten, and so forth. They have insect bites and, and sting prevention, suicide prevention, traumatic brain injury preventions, unintentional firearm injury preventions. A lot of the parents, you know, they carry firearms, whether professional use or for safety reuse, and they don't realize they need to keep it out of the, the way of a child. And a child could get a hold of a gun and go off a bit, you know, and there you go. There's, there's your harm. So it's, it's basically, um, it's basically, it covers a lot and it breaks it down by age group. Now, do you find, um, in your practice, uh, that you're dealing a lot with teenagers and teenage parents? Teenagers and teenage parents? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, because of, because of high school, obviously it would be teenagers. But um, yeah. what what uh, what uh, challenges do uh, dealing with children with children present in a school setting? Well, the the first challenge and the one that I is the one where we try to educate parents how to talk to the children about sex. It's not a very comfortable topic for some parents, and some parents don't even welcome it. So I think that's really the first challenge that I see because an ounce of prevention, again, these are things that could be prevented. We live in a society where birth control has become so so and available to us so much easier than it was years ago, and it's something that could be prevented. But when parents... Parents have to be open to the topic of conversation. So I have enlisted people from a local hospital to speak to our parents about it. How do you talk to your child about sex? How do you talk to your child about dating? How do you talk to your child about 
um, what's the topic I'm thinking? Violence during dating also. Domestic so, violence, yes. Yes, because children need to realize that it's not okay to be mishandled or abused, and so it's good to teach children that from an early age so they don't think that this is the norm. Now, a lot of what you mentioned is the preventative work. That's that's a, a, a must. However, I'm talking about after the fact. We know we have teenage girls with children. We know we have as young as you know middle school children getting pregnant. What are we? What challenges does that present to your help to your nurses and to the health offices when those children present at the school? Well, a lot of them present to the school where it's. They're already in an advanced state, and the parents don't know. And it becomes a very touchy situation, touchy topic. Every district is different. You have to have your policies and your protocols in place. The district that I happen to work for, the protocol is that if a child presents to us and they let us know that they're pregnant, we enlist the help of the team, meaning a social worker and or psychologist and the nurse's office, and together we present the information to the parents. Sometimes the children, most of the time, 99% of the times the children are telling us the truth. We we do have that 1% arena where they're not telling us the truth or they think they are and they're not. So, But we have had children, yes, that come to school four months, five months pregnant. It's too late to resort to other alternatives. So they've forced to either have the child and keep the child or have the child and give up the child for adoption, which a lot of them don't choose to do. And then the challenge becomes how do they fulfill their educational requirements to finish school so that they could become a better parent for that child. But their babies having babies in reality. Yes, yes. And I know that's uh, something that comes up, something that's not often discussed. That's why I definitely wanted to, to bring it up on this program. Yes, it, it's okay. a touchy topic. It really is. I mean, parent, it, and, it, and it all goes by home because parents don't know how to talk to their child about sex or they're not comfortable discussing the topic or their religious beliefs hold them back. You know, it becomes, and some parents feel, and I understand it completely, some parents feel that if they do engage in the conversation of sex, that the child may perceive it as permission to have sex, but it's not. So it's it's educating both, you know, the parent and the child, and and it becomes very difficult. It it unfortunately, it falls on the school once it does happen, and it's here. So now it falls on us to kind of navigate and negotiate their resources and see how we could help them to get their goals met. That being graduation. Yeah. What I observed since I supervise health teachers, I've observed that everything that needs to be taught is being taught through the health curriculum in middle school. And yet you still hear when, when students confide in, in myself or, or other administrators or, or nurses, you know, every, you know, students choose people they're comfortable with to confide in. You find that they are still more inclined to listen too often to myths presented by their peers than the information that they acquired in middle school and that was reinforced in high school health classes. So um, I think sometimes parents need to be made aware that, hey, your, your, your children are not fools. They've had this information presented to them. And, you know, if you don't reinforce it and hold their hand and follow through, then they're more inclined to, to, to slide toward their peers and get themselves in trouble. And given it so. to that peer pressure, you're so, you're so correct. It, it's true. And they give into that to that moment, and then everything went up in smoke. Whatever they were taught, whatever they, I mean, and we're talking about, like you said, it starts at middle school. So the health curriculum starts from years before they could even get themselves into that position, and yet they still give into that peer pressure because it needs to be reinforced from home, like you said, from their guardian and or parents. Yeah. Now, as strange as this may sound, uh, you know, when I was going through puberty in my generation, um, we were confronted, you know, front and center with uh, the AIDS epidemic exploding all over the place and all over the news. And it was just people didn't know much about it. So people were ter- terrified. And that actually shocks a lot of us, myself and my peers, uh, into shape. 
you know, instead of being promiscuous, we were, you know, very cautious or abstinent or what have you because it was so frightening and it was so, you know, in the public eye and it was, it was just this, this scourge, you know, going across the world. And, and now that same sense of fear and, 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 and trepidation toward sex is not present. Um, I should say toward, uh, sexually transmitted diseases is not present. I don't think in this generation, they're not experiencing what, we experienced when we saw neighbors dying and, and, you know, people, you know, friends of friends dying and, and, and this, this, this strange disease no one knew about. Um, do, do you sense the same? I think we're from the same generation pretty much. Do you sense the same difference where the kids today are not nearly as terrified at, at, at uh, sexually transmitted diseases as maybe, uh, children 25 years ago? I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Um, kids nowadays, kids in general feel that they're invincible which is why they, their risk of behaviors are always so, you know, they speed when they get their first, you know, they get their license and they get their car, their speed. They take those unnecessary chances. I think that's part of growing up. But when you and I grew up, I think the difference between then and now is the healthcare advances and the medical advances that have come through. When we first were exposed to it, I mean, I never forgot, I was actually in the service when I first heard about a famous actor who had died of AIDS, and you're like, oh, my God, what? And that's how AIDS, you know, became for me, like this big broadcast. I wasn't even in the medical field back then. And, of course, you know, you become frightened because you're like, oh, my God, if this celebrity could die of it, then, you know, that means anybody could die of it, and, and, and so forth down the line. Back then, people weren't surviving the AIDS epidemics as they are now with the healthcare advances that have come through. So I think that you and I saw the true in-your-face effects of it, where the children now, you could see a person that has had AIDS for 10 years, and they look healthy. You could never tell. They don't look like Absolutely. they're in a way, or they don't look like they're sick. So that's why that universal precautions came about also in the 80s, where healthcare providers, we have to wear gloves no matter what. Whenever we're doing mm-hmm. an invasive procedure, we must wear gloves to protect ourselves and our patients. And that became something that was hard for us because a lot of people, were when they went through nursing school and or medical school, they didn't have to wear gloves. Everything was like, okay, we do this, we do things right to it. And now you have to stop, wash your hands, dry those hands well, and put on those gloves to protect yourself and others. So I think that a picture's worth a thousand words. I think that us being exposed to the nitty-gritty of it and in-your-face type of thing versus now, where it's more masked because of the healthcare advances, I think that's why children feel, oh, it won't happen to me. That just won't happen to me. And it does. And not, yes, in fact, a scary statistic I read either, either last year or the year before where the incidence of uh, uh, HIV infection amongst uh, black and Latino teens in particular is, is on a rise, especially in areas like Long Island. Yes. You know, and and but, also HPV is another common one, which mm-hmm. people who are prone to HPV or, or have HPV are more prone and susceptible to HIV. So they don't realize that you're, you're by doing these risky behaviors and not protecting yourself, taking the steps to protect yourself, you, you're just leaving yourself wide open. And we Absolutely. get uh, one of the things, I mean, you were going, you touched upon before the things that we could find in a health office. Well, everything is age dependent, of course. And one of the things that I come across in my practice quite often is the Department of Health calling us our local Department of Health calling us to see if we have a student that goes to that school because they need to get in touch with them. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they won't tell us what it's about, but we already know. And okay. it's because that child has been diagnosed with a sexually transmitted disease or a partner has named that person in, in a sexually transmitted situation. So now the Department of Health, one of their obligations is to contact that individual and say, by the way, if you were with this individual, this individual has, you know, contracted this, you might want to get yourself checked. Mm. Wow. I didn't, I actually didn't know you received those calls. All right. It's time for us to take another short break, but stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. And now, more Educate on TalkZone.com. Here's Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to the show and our continued discussion on the topic of school health with professional registered nurse Sylvia Kalich. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-GO-FOR-IT, 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on TalkZone. So, Sylvia. Yes, sir. Um I know we, we strayed, uh, not really off topic. I think it was an important, uh, information to bring up because I don't think many people know the depth to, uh, the issues we deal with in schools. So, uh, that's, that's why I really, uh, staved into the, you know, sex education and, and uh, teen pregnancies and what have you. Um, however, let's, let's get back on track with the many different areas that, uh, nurses have to deal with in schools, including, Albuterol. Can you tell us what albuterol is? Yes, albuterol is a um, medication that's given. It's a bronchial dilator. It's in the classifications of bronchial dilators that is used oftentimes to treat asthma and asthma-related symptoms. Sometimes you could have a child that has a case of pneumonia and will develop the asthma for that one time only. And so doctors often don't want to label the child as being an asthmatic because it was an isolated episode. Other times you have children who have recurring asthma, and it could be for various reasons. It could be for exercise-induced asthma, allergy-induced asthma, if they're allergic to a particular allergen that causes their asthma to react. It could be weather-induced asthma, the cold, the heat, the humidity, whatever have you. So albuterol is the first medication that's used to open up those tiny little bronchioles in the lungs to help them breathe better. It's almost like the roots of a tree. So think of that, those little roots into the ground of the tree being at the bottom of your lungs, and that's what needs to open up. So it, it dilates the, the bronchies to help facilitate the child to, or the person to breathe better. Okay. Now, not too long ago, there was a recall. Can you explain what transpired that led to the albuterol recall? Yes. Um, years ago, we used to have, um, oh, wait, wait, there's two different things. I'm sorry. There, there was a U.S. FDA MedWatch that reported that Right Dose Corporation was conducting a voluntary recall of the albuterol sulfate inhalation solution. Because you have albuterol that could be administered via pump or it could be administered via a uh, nebulizer treatment. So this was the nebulizer treatment that they were recalling. And um, they said that basically um, they needed to recall it. They had the numbers included in the recall. And if you had any questions, you could call the Right Dose Corporation yourself at 803 area code 935-3995. But it was a safety issue that they recalled them because there was incorrect dosage concentration and it could cause a potential health hazard was the reason for the recall. Not that it was anything wrong with the medication itself; it was the dosing. Okay. Now, uh, is albuterol also used for asthmatics? Yes. Yes. Okay. It's usually the first course of treatment used for asthmatics. Yes. Albuterol okay. sulfate is the generic name for Proventil or Ventolin, those type of name brand medications. Okay. Now, uh, the reason I brought up asthma or, or started with albuterol and then mentioned asthma is because there's a program called Winning with Asthma. Can you uh, fill us in on that? Oh, yeah, that's a wonderful program. It was a program that was devised with coaches in mind. It's a 30-minute online educational program that focuses on what coaches, referees, and physical education teachers should know about asthma, including the asthma basics, what medications are used and when, ways to prevent exercise-induced asthma, and steps to take when athletes are experiencing asthmatic episodes, including suggestions for cold weather sports. And basically, when you do the asthma program online, they give you a little booklet and they give you a card for completing the program. I, I think it's a wonderful program, and I know that you have instituted the program in, in our educational setting, which has been great. Yes, and one of the things that I find interesting is that you get a lot of students who are are pretty much, I shouldn't say overprotected, I don't know if there's really a such thing as overprotecting a child, but um, they, they regurgitate what they're being told at home. So a child runs, they feel winded, 
and they go, oh, I got asthma, and they think that means they can't run, <laughs> um, and which is not true. But once again, they they say it because that's what they're being told by the parent or the adults at home that, oh, you're going to aggravate your asthma. And I find out it's just a lack of education because we have Olympians competing with asthma. Um, you know, so when we have a situation where we are extremely obese um, population and it's going to cost us tremendously in healthcare down the road. Actually, it's already costing us, but it's going to, it can bankrupt a con- country when you think of the, the percentage of obese children we have. And sometimes I think that asthma is used as a reason not to exercise, a reason to not get out and move and, 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 and stave off obesity. What would your uh, feelings be on that? Um, I agree with you. I think the parent mentality is, oh, my God, you know, I don't want anything to happen to my baby. I don't want them to end up with an asthmatic episode, and they're not there to protect them and or help them. And I think, like you said, education is the key. The American Lung Association has a wonderful program um, called Open Airway for Schools. I used to teach it when I worked at, um, as a school nurse in my previous years and my experience. And it's an educational program geared for 8-year-olds up to 11-year-olds from third to sixth grade, and it teaches children exactly what I had mentioned before, the basics of asthma, when to use your medications, when not to use them, ways of preventing your asthma, and more importantly, how to recognize your asthma symptoms because everybody's different and everybody's triggers are different. So the first, one of the very first basic fundamental things we teach is what are your triggers? Do you know what your triggers are? Is it smoke in the house? Is someone smoking in your home? And does that trigger your asthma? Or is it the smell of certain colognes? Believe it or not, that could be an asthma trigger as well. Mm. Um, interesting enough, we have had, you know, we do sports physicals at school, as you know. And we have to clear children for sports. And I put in a, a program in place now where our school doctor cannot clear our children if they are diagnosed with asthma. The asthmatic doctor, the pulmonologist, or the private medical doctor is the only one that could clear that student to participate in sports. Not to discourage them from participating in sports, but I need to make sure that the child, the student, understands, that athlete understands, I can do this but I have to do this the right way. And that was my goal. And it's working because a lot of kids are very non-compliant with bringing in their medication to school. We stay Absolutely. in an asthmatic episode. Now we have an emergency going on because it's airway, right? Airway is first. We always have to maintain airway. And we have nothing to give them. And so that what do you do? So one of the ways that I've kind of combated that problem is by making it clear to them you want to participate in sports, that's a wonderful thing. We encourage you to. However, your doctor has to clear you for that. And in addition to that, my measure is we have to have the inhaler in the health office with the proper paperwork as well as them carrying an inhaler with them, and we let the coaches know so that the coaches are not caught off guard either because it's not fair to them. True. Okay, now um, I don't know if you mind – uh, without obviously naming the school district or naming names, mm-hmm. um, but we 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 both worked with a youngster who it wasn't asthma actually it was an allergy attack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, there were things that the parent didn't do right. Can you actually walk us through that yeah. uh, tra- tragic story just so that people see that these are examples of why it's so important for nurses to be on top of things and why it's so important for parents to listen and follow through. Yes, sometimes parents perceive the nurses, oh, they're just being a pain. Here they go again, it's the nurse on the phone. You know, they're calling us, sometimes they feel like we're hassling them. And we're not. We're clearly, listen, we have the best intentions at heart. We we care about your child just as much as we do, and we just want to be in partnership with that. And that's basically what it is. And this this child, this student, um, he was one of my students at the elementary level. He was allergic to dairy products. And he also had asthma. So he had both. And I was the one who taught, you know, the asthma fundamentals, how to use the inhaler, got the inhaler in school, got the EpiPen in school. And the child graduated sixth grade and went on to middle school and to high school. And I believe at the age of 17, he was home. He had eaten some pasta that had some Parmesan cheese, and the Parmesan cheese had dairy product in it, and experienced an allergic reaction and the parent did not have the EpiPen at home. And this is a true story. It's very sad. So the parent, in a panic, 
rather than to call 911 and stay with the child, left the child and went to the drugstore to pick up the inhaler, I mean the EpiPen, and came back and the child was dead on the lawn, on the front lawn. So mm. the child died. So when people say that, you know, allergies are not really bad, they are. If you have an identified allergy for your child, nothing to be embarrassed about. It happens. Make sure that you work with your school nurse, firstly and foremost, advising them of such, and work with he or she on what steps to take to keep that child safe while they're in school and at home. We'll, we, we will do that teaching with the parents. We do. Yeah, and I and it's definitely a good idea. And I know New York is getting to the point where you practically have to be a medical professional just to coach. And um, sometimes we think it's overblown until we realize situations like that not only do happen, but they happen so quickly. Yeah. And we know there are students who are have had hadn't had attacks for years. They've been allergic. They're allergic to bees. For example, we had this case uh, not too long ago mm-hmm. where the youngster is a state. Actually, he's a national champion level track athlete. Hadn't had any episodes with regards to being stung by a bee or what have you. So he stopped carrying his EpiPen. It wouldn't be in a first aid kit. You couldn't find it. Got to the point where I had to. Tell the coaches, do not let that child on the bus to go to the state championship unless he can show you his EpiPen. So it, it, it's very easy to assume that, oh, the kid's fine. He hasn't had episodes in years and take the kid's word for it. He's a super athlete, but we can't, we actually can't be that, um, lax. We have to always be on top of every issue with these kids. No, and, and, and you're, and you're correct. You're 100% correct. It's, it, 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 it's called false reassurance. We cannot fall into that false reassurance under, under that umbrella. And I'm glad to see that educators like yourself are taking that so seriously to the point where you're even advising your staff, no, stop everything. This child cannot, cannot proceed another inch, another foot onto that bus until they have what they need. Because I'm of the mindset like you, I, I, I'd rather have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. So I'd rather deal with that scenario than the scenario of not having, not being equipped with what we need. So that's what we're doing in our district. We're promoting that if you have a severe allergy to anything that's been identified by your doctor or communicated to us by your medical team, as well as asthma, you cannot be clear for sports unless you have those two things in place. We advise the coaches. We do coaches coaching training, as you know. Um, so that the coaches know what to do in case of an emergency, how to handle an EpiPen, so that if the child cannot administer it themselves, then they are able to step in and do what they need to do to save that child's life. Absolutely. And always, always, when an EpiPen is used, I have to reiterate this, an ambulance must be called, always. The EpiPen buys you 15 minutes of time at the most. So it's just buying you time. You always need to follow up with 911, and you need to let them know that you have just used an EpiPen, that you need that ambulance to be equipped with an EpiPen, because not all ambulances carry EpiPens, unless yeah. you tell them when you call. Yeah. And actually, there's another story that uh, I'd like you to share, but first we have to take another short break. Sure. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. listening to educate on talkzone.com back to jonathan jefferson welcome back welcome back welcome back to the show and the conclusion of our discussion on school health with sylvia kalich uh sylvia before i move on to the last couple of topics i want to touch on uh are you familiar with a story i believe it was from out west uh, west coast where uh the it was a child who needed an EpiPen, and the parent first gave them Benadryl. And yeah. I think one, I think one of the parents was actually a medical doctor. Yeah. Uh, can, can you share that? If you remember, can you share that with us? Yes, it was a 13-year-old um, girl named Natalie. I'm not sure what her last name was, but her first name was Natalie. She died at a sacramental camp from peanut allergies, despite the fact of receiving medication. And basically. Um, she was very good. It was a very sad story because th- this was a 13-year-old that was very compliant. She knew what to eat, what not to eat, and she took a bite out of a Rice Krispies treat that had a coating of peanut butter, but she didn't know it. 
So when the, the minute she took the single bite, she knew, she got rid of it, she went over to her mom, and her mom gave her a dose of Benadryl and monitored her for about 20 minutes. And, and she seemed fine for a short time, but then after 20 minutes, she had trouble breathing, and she started to throw up. And her father, who's a doctor, administered the EpiPen, which contains the epinephrine, um, three times before she stopped breathing and could not save her. He, she literally died in his arms. Mm. And the lesson here to be learned is that the only course of treatment for a life-threatening allergy is an EpiPen. Don't give a child Benadryl or an adult Benadryl and wait to see if they're okay because it still builds up in their body. Their body's still reacting. And that's why I said earlier, when you do an EpiPen, it only buys you like that 10 to 15-minute window. You still have to follow up with advanced medical care, get them to the emergency room, and have the hospital monitor them. Oftentimes, they'll monitor them. They'll keep them overnight and make sure that they're okay before they're discharged. But it was a very sad story, very yes. sad. And that happened yes. um, the end of July of 2013. Yeah, it happens frequently um, and often. So, uh, which is the same thing. Um, yeah. In fact, in fact, someone in uh, a school district we're both familiar with also, uh, I think, it's an 11-year-old child uh, passed this summer. That's, in that case, it was asthma, I believe. Yes, it was. Um, um, yeah. Go ahead. I'm so. Sorry. Yeah, I just let's move on to a couple of other topics, uh, and oh, it's been very well, informative. If I may, now that you mentioned the asthma and the 11-year-old that died, I believe that 11-year-old was in a school in Philadelphia where they had cut back on the nurses. They had cut back on the school nursing staff. And this little girl, um, there was no nurse on staff because of the cutbacks. They had one nurse going between three buildings. And on this particular day, the school nurse was not in that building to help the child. And they left the care to a secretary. And the secretary didn't really know what to do, and this child died because she did not receive the proper treatment. Mm. So talk about the value of a school nurse. It's, it's more important than people realize. Uh, school nurses are invaluable. In fact, if we had more time, we can do a whole, a whole segment on school nurses and the professional staff because they mm-hmm. deal with uh, <laughs> the adults in a building probably as much as the children these days. Yes. Um, uh, but let's, are we still in flu season? Um, yes, actually we are. Um, the flu season um, starts usually as early as the end of September, and they tell you the CDC guidelines still say up to February 1st, I believe, you can still get the flu shot. But okay. the best preventative measure, the, the best, is that hand washing. I can't stress it enough. Not just for the flu, for any communicable disease, is hand washing. Soap and, and water will do. It doesn't have to be the super expensive antibacterial soaps. Just regular soap and water. Okay. And frequently, all day, pretty much. Yes. Yes. Okay. And let's talk about another hot topic, which is a really an international hot topic over the last few years. It's not even recent, but it's it's a lot of research, a lot of money being poured into this, and that's concussions. Uh, what has, has been your involvement in the last few years re- regarding concussions? Well, concussions are... The, the enhanced the awareness has been enhanced over the last few years, like you said, and it's a big thing for colleges and high school and middle school too. And it's not just limited to sports; any type of head injury, whether a child is playing in the playground and they bump heads together, or whether they're playing a sport and they sustain a head injury, whether they bump their head on someone's knee or whatever. Um, you know, the reason why there's so much attention to it is because statistics are showing that people in their 30s now that suffered head injuries when they were younger, they're suffering neurological defects now because of it. And they came back and they said, you know what, we need to take this head injury a little bit more seriously. So it has become a magnification of what to do and enhancing people's awareness, don't take head injuries lightly. Okay. The first injury, when you, when you hit the brain, when you first hit the brain, it's not so much that first injury that's the fatal one, or, or it can be in, in some cases, it's the subsequent injury. So if somebody returns back to a sport too soon and the brain hasn't had a chance to heal, when it takes that second impact, that's what does the damage. And okay. that's why it's so important to rest and stay away from the sport and do what you have to do with your healthcare provider. 
Don't ignore your symptoms because they're very crucial in your care. And I also believe it's important for parents to know if your child falls at home and bumps their head, if they if they fall off a chair in a classroom, um, those head injuries can be just as uh, damaging as a sports-related a head injury, uh, and, and the protocols are the same. Yes. The, the okay. guidelines are the same and the protocols are the same. And believe it or not, now that we live in this electronic, technologically oriented world, doctors are, neurologists and doctors all over the world are taking it a step further. It's not just about physically resting the brain, but it's also limiting your time using the brain in texting, because you know how children love to text, especially teenagers, um, looking at electronics, looking at tablets, messing around with your phone. They're even instituting that measure now that you need to literally rest your brain. So it's not just the physical, take yourself out of the physical component of it, but it's also the straining of the eyes and the straining of the brain taxing, taxing the brain. They don't want you to do that either. And and what is a basic uh, return to activity protocol? Like what 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 steps should be followed and and refollowed if something doesn't seem right? Well, if if something the first things are first. If somebody has a concussion, they should immediately seek medical attention. Immediately, doesn't matter how small the head injury may appear, because you just never know. So that's step number one. Step number two, follow the recommendations of your doctor. Make sure that that person is okay to return to play. You, you can start feeling some... I suffered a concussion in 2007, and even though I'm in the nursing field, I never really understood it until it happened to me. And I could only describe it as your head being in this big tunnel. And the headaches and the visual disturbances and the inability to recall events, especially in short-term memory. I just couldn't recall certain things, and I have an excellent memory. I mean, I remember phone numbers like no one else does. I remember birthdays like no one else does. And I was unable to do that for a period of time, and I knew something was wrong. So if you don't feel right, you go by the patient, you go by what they tell you. And the first step is to take the person out of play, and gradually you're going to monitor them, make sure that they're okay and they're recovering, and if they are, then doctors and neurologists around the world, what they do is they usually start taking little baby steps to return them back to their activities in a slow pattern. So it could be like if they're playing basketball, okay, well, today you could go and sit and watch. Tomorrow or next week you could start, you know, dribbling the ball, but try to avoid contact with others. And then maybe week number three, now you can start getting involved in the sport if you're feeling okay and you're not feeling any symptoms and so forth down the line. So it's a graduated process. And um, there's also the CDC um, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They have the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control has a heads-up concussion and youth sports. But like you said, it could be used also for if somebody falls at home, whether it's an adult or a child. It'll help parents. And they have a wonderful program online. I believe it's about an hour, if I'm not mistaken. It's called Heads-Up Concussions, and yes. it's free. It's a, yes. free, it's a free online concussion training for coaches, but it's also a good educational piece for parents or caregivers or family yes. members that are made and be entrusted in the care of a child. Okay. Thank you, Sylvia. We have been speaking with Sylvia Kalich, nurse supervisor for a Long Island school district, columnist, just for the health of it, and blogger. To learn more about Sylvia, visit her website at www.asknursesylvia.com. To receive guidance from her, email her at asknursylvia at asknursylvia.com. Sylvia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. Tune in next week as we continue to tackle the truth behind schoolhouse doors.